Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm so delighted we're in studio. Marissa Gillette, thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, so, it's just a pleasure to see those pretty blue eyes. Uh, 203-333-9422 is our number. You can call me at 203-333-9422. We're chatting with the chairwoman of Pura, which is our public utility regulatory agency, authority. What is it? Which one is it? It's authority. Authority. Okay. <laughs> and it's a mouthful to say. It sure is. Uh, but we want to continue to use the acronym because we want people to know exactly what it is. And just before we get into the specifics, uh, Marissa Gillette, uh, Marissa, just tell us, Briefly, the mission of Pura. What is the mission? Sure. So Pura steps in on behalf of the competitive market because we regulate monopoly utilities, so investor-owned utilities. So since they don't have natural competition, our job as regulators uh, is to step in where the competitive market otherwise would. So we're regulating the rates, prices, terms, and conditions of the distribution utilities in the state, so the electric, gas, and some water. They all need to be the investor-owned utilities, so not the utilities that are owned by municipals or Mm -hmm. co-ops. Okay, Okay. so for example, Norwalk has a municipally-owned utility, so that would not be under the jurisdiction of Pura. Correct. Okay, very good. So the ones that we know about, Eversource, Avangrid, which owns United Illuminating, are there any other big names? So both Eversource and Avangrid have uh, gas affiliates as well. So C, uh, C, CNG, SCG, and Yankee. And then on the waterfront, it's Aquarion and Connecticut Water for the most part. Right. So we would. So you might not know if you get a bill from Aquarion that it's actually owned by Eversource. Correct. But that means because it's owned by Eversource, you have jurisdiction over that too. Absolutely. Okay. Since they're investor-owned. So let's get into it. So um, let's just start with yesterday because there's always something in the news. So yesterday, the Hartford Current, Christopher Keating, doing a very big story that 2,000 Eversource customers were surprised recently again upon learning they had been blocked when trying to switch to a lower-cost generator, such as, he says, Constellation Energy CT or North American Power. And then he interviewed a bunch of people that thought that they would be able to change because it's no secret that Eversource has said that they're going to hike their rates. 
Absolutely. So if we can just take a step back and explain what it means to be financial hardship, uh, because that is the designation that people found was blocking them from changing suppliers. So a financial hardship designation is defined by statute, and it basically means if you qualify for um, programs like SNAP or Husky benefits, uh, it provides you uh, protection under the law for um, things, especially during winter. There's a winter protection moratorium, so from November 1st to May 1st every year. If you have this financial hardship designation, it prevents your service from being terminated if you're using electricity or gas for heating. But what does that have to do with switching to a cheaper provider? Absolutely. So there is a separate law that prohibits financial hardship customers from being enrolled with third-party suppliers. So um, Why? Uh, because there was a study done a couple years ago that showed, for the most part, 78% of financial hardship customers who have enrolled with third-party suppliers actually pay more for, than they would on standard service. Okay. So that is, of course, not what we're So they've seeing. gotten into a bait-and-switch, in other words. So for their Absolutely. own protection, we pass this law. Correct. Okay. And PURE is required by law to review that data every two years, and we just so happen to be reviewing that right now. Okay. Um, and you pair that with a couple months ago, Eversource is trying to increase, we're all trying to increase the number of people enrolled in financial hardship designation if they are actually financial hardship. So here there was an effort, I'd say, um, an attempt that went wrong uh, where Eversource has tried to use marketing data to enroll customers that they thought were financial hardship and they turned out not to be. So there has been a mislabeling of those customers as financial hardship and because of that separate law that generally prohibits financial hardship customers from enrolling with third-party suppliers, those customers have been blocked. What was in it for Eversource to have labeled those 2,000 customers financially hard? You know, uh, hardship. Yeah. So um, all of the stakeholders that are generally involved in our proceedings, whether it's PIRA, whether it's the Office Consumer Council, um, DEEP, we're all trying to make sure anyone who is eligible for financial hardship enrolls because in addition to the winter protection moratorium, you also get access to arrearage management. You get access to the low-income discount rate that PIRA just established. Okay. And the benefit for us collectively of getting customers in those programs is that it is in theory going to reduce what are called uncollectibles. So at the end of the year, all the bills that go unpaid, it doesn't come out of Eversource's profits. It goes into a bucket that is then socialized across all rate payers. So it's in our collective best interest. Are you saying they get paid anyway? They get paid anyway. This is the clarity that I'm looking for, Marissa. So we're chatting with Marissa Gillette. So what you're saying is, the incentive for Eversource to find people and then label them as having a financial hardship is if they're in that bucket, then they are not, in fact, uncollected or uncollectable, but in fact, they have another source of funding for them. Correct. So we are. You tra- and I pay it through our taxes. Correct. Well, that's what's happening right now. Um, by law, and it's going all the way back to the U.S. Supreme Court. Whoever said follow the money, by the way, was very smart. (laughs) Absolutely true. In in utility regulations, you must absolutely follow the money um, because they're investor-owned, so they have a fiduciary duty to their investors, so you must trace the money. So in this instance, we want customers to lower their uncollectibles because it means for you and I that in addition to the benefit those customers get, you and I will have to pay less because those customers are contributing some. Some. As opposed to none. Oh, that's good. I see. In other words, they have a reduced rate. They pay something as opposed to nothing. Right. And also it's good because we sort of have a tally 
of the people that are really poor, and we don't want people, frankly, you know, freezing to death in their homes. Like, nobody wants that. Absolutely. The societal right. costs of having right. your service nobody terminated are right. terrible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so Eversource put these 2,000 people into a bucket. Lo and behold, they, they look up, they read the newspapers, and they say, wait a minute, this is going to be very expensive. Maybe a third-party provider will be cheaper this season, and then maybe I can always switch back. Right. And then they find out, whoops, I can't. Right. So that's where we are right now. Okay. It's not where we're going to be next week. Oh. So Eversource has filed a motion with Pura that is asking um, permission to terminate that trial status of the marketing. I see. Um, And also, as it exists today, if you think you have been improperly coded, you can call up the utility and fill out a piece of paper that says, I understand the benefits I lose from removing financial hardship, and then you can enroll in a supplier today. Now, the motion Eversource has filed would um, get rid of the paperwork, and uh, if Pura approves it, which I can't speculate about what we're going to do, but <laughs> if Pura Are approves you, it. Well, can you say how you're going to vote on it? I can't. You cannot. Um, oh, that's true. The hearing hasn't been held yet? The, in this instance, a hearing is not required, but oh. we do allow seven days for um, stakeholders to comment on the motion. Okay. We're about at the seventh day. I believe All right. it's tomorrow. And when is it? when are you going to be ruling on this? When are you going to... I think it's safe to say you'll see something this week. Well, okay. I think that's safe to say that we made a little news right now. So that's Marissa <laughs> Gillette. So that'll be a headline from the Lisa Wexler Show. We'll figure that out. Um, thank you very much. So that's one thing. Those for, that's for those few thousand people that want to have another alternative. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, I always have a lot I can talk to you about, but this <laughs> one is specifically for a WICC listening audience. Uh, Kayla Mutchler this morning, Connecticut Insider with Hearst, reported that new power lines could be coming to Weston, Fairfield, Easton, and Bridgeport after, and these are her words, a no-decision discussion with Eversource at Thursday's Board of Selectmen meeting. This is, she's talking about in Weston. And she quotes uh, the testimony of someone named Abigail Bowersox, a project manager for the 1714-1720 line rebuild project with Eversource, saying that the project will rebuild a 9.4-mile long section of power lines between Old Town substation in, what, in Bridgeport and the Weston substation. And basically, the argument is that there are age-related failures from deteriorating lattice tower structures. They want to replace some obsolete wire. They say it's one of their worst-performing circuits in the state due to, quote, vegetation-related disturbances. In other words, trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is another one where you want to follow the money. Um, so when it comes to vegetation management, it's a very expensive proposition for addressing reliability and resilience needs. Um, so that's why on one of our previous shows, we talked about the eighth track of Pira's Equitable Modern Grid uh, Initiative, which, which sets out a new framework for how we're going to evaluate reliability and resilience programs moving forward. Right now, the utilities are um, within the confines of the law, allowed to proceed with their vegetation management programs um, by following certain notice provisions. So right now under the law, it's Connecticut General Statute 16-234, I believe. Um, It sets out uh, the power for addressing um, uh, vegetation management issues. It empowers the local tree warden. 
So in the municipalities, you all should have a, a tree warden um, who can go toe to toe with uh, Eversource or UI Arborist um, and make a decision about whether certain trees can come down. Now that's not the case if those trees are on uh, corridors that go with transmission lines. Which is what they're saying this is. Which is what this sounds like it is. Mm -hmm. Transmission lines are regulated by the federal government. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's not a lot that the state can do in terms of advising um, on the vegetation management clearance standards when it comes to a corridor that deals with federally regulated transmission lines. But let me ask you, based on what you know, we're chatting with Marissa Gillette, 203-333-9422. Based on what you know about what they're saying needs to be replaced, is their way of transmitting electricity obsolete? In other words, are there other solutions? Because I'll tell you why. They say these lattice towers are 68 years old, they're not designed with current National Electric Safety Code standards, and they are, quote, a high priority for replacement. So they're going to be replacing them with upgrade, upgraded wires, and in one case, a ground wire will be replaced with a fiber optic ground wire. Seems to me it would need to be buried. I don't know what they mean by ground. They're going to replace seven structures over six locations, and they say they're going to have to be very high. The new structure height will be 108 feet tall. Mm -hmm. So we are increasing, the industry generally is increasing the height of a lot of this infrastructure in the hopes that it will reduce the need for vegetation management. So if they can get higher than the treetop, in other words, they won't have to cut down the tree? That's the theory. Can this be, can, can this kind of a project be buried? Uh, probably. Um, so in most instances, you can evaluate alternatives like undergrounding. You can evaluate what's called a non-wires alternative where you may look at, um, can I replace the need for a redundant wire here with a battery plus solar? Those are particularly uh, good for rural communities where you may be at the end of the line. And Well, this 9.4 stretch through Weston and Easton is probably pretty rural, a lot of it. It may be. So... Um, when it comes to evaluating how you're going to replace uh, that segment, they're going to look at um, the cost of all those different things, which is something we've talked about before. So is it the only thing that they have to look at is cost? In other words, are they not required to look at other things? Can uh, they only look at the cost? In most instances, yes. That's how um, uh, regulatory work has been done historically. Now, if it was with respect to the distribution system, which is what the state regulates, moving forward, they will not be able to look at just cost because of the decision that we made in August, which requires them to look at other things, um, including uh, they can look at cost, but it needs to be over a wider um, time horizon. Because uh, as we've talked about on previous shows, it's one thing to say, well, replacing this pull and wire with a pull and wire is cheaper than undergrounding right now. But if you're looking at something and saying, but that same pull and wire is going to fall down 10 times over the next 10 years, and I'm going to have to replace it 10 times. Or it's going to cause power outages because a wind is going to you know, require it to be out of commission for a while. Absolutely. And there are new and recent studies um, that have been attempting to quantify uh, the cost to the individual end user about what it means to lose power. Um, because those are traditionally factors and variables that have not been taken into account in traditional utility regulation. You're just simply looking at the cost of the immediate thing in front of you. You know, it's so interesting because 
I'm a public policy wonk, you can tell. Yes. And that's why I love chatting with you. We're chatting with Marissa Gillette of Pura. And one of the people I've gotten to know recently is a guy named Greg Katz, who I think I need to introduce you to offline. Okay. It's part of my Lisa Wexler Show offline network of people <laughs> that I introduce to people. And he is the leader of something called the Smart Surfaces Coalition. Okay. He's actually a green leader in the country. Like, I think he was the founder of the first green bank or something. He's like a green leader. Okay. But the Smart Services Coalition is a coalition of, of things like the National Institute of Public Health along with Coca-Cola, right? So mm-hmm. it's private, public, and not-for-profit. And it is, and its mission, and I'm going to get to my point, its mission is to look at all the surfaces that we're coating our planet with that can be done so much better because it would lead to a cooler planet. So, for example, every time we replace a road with another dark road with asphalt, we are contributing to heat on the surface of our planet. Absolutely. And there are a lot of different ways that we can do this. And I was chatting with him the other day, and the light bulb went on with me because he said to me, the problem with building codes is that when a town or a city are commissioning new roads, new surfaces, new parking lots... They are only required to look at the first cost in, whatever mm-hmm. he said, as opposed to everything else. Right, the future-proofing. The future-proofing, the uh, impact on our climate, the impact on our nature as a result of the impact on our climate. What, how much more we could preserve and protect our particular towns and streetscapes if we put in trees Mm -hmm. and we created shade. In other words, there's a million different things. But if a building code only requires people to look at the cheapest first cost in, we end up with the same black asphalt all the time. Absolutely. And that's what I'm listening to you. It's absolutely a perfect analogy to what you think about with utility regulation because it's the same concept here. It is. We're thinking about utility regulation for the past 150 years has just looked at what is the least cost right in front of me. And um, what's compounded by that is something called CAPEX bias, capital expenditure bias. It's a term that's been um, thrown around a lot lately because utilities are incented to um, spend the most money that they can on capital projects. So putting why? Uh, because that's how they earn their profit. So under two U.S. Supreme Court decisions that go back over 100 years, they are entitled by law to earn um, the opportunity to earn a re- reasonable rate of return on any capital expenditures they make. So while they are um, incented by utility regulators to um, choose the cheapest option to do something, they're going to pick a a thousand cheapest options because the more capital expenditures that they can make, the more money that they can earn. So utility regulators have two fronts that they have to deal with these days. They have to be making sure, in in my opinion, we need to be saying, okay, but what's the cost benefit analysis over the next 10 years? And what do we mean by cost and benefit? Exactly. And um, are we going to restrict that analysis to purely economic? And I don't, my argument and my position in the direction that we're bringing Pura along, um, the utilities by extension, is that it needs to be a broader um, a broader conversation because people are not, uh, you know, they're not built to just think about the uh, costs of that immediate pull and wire. 
because we want to know, okay, well, how many outages are we going to experience? Because I'm going to have to think about a hotel. I'm going to have to think about all my lost food, lost medication. So if as people and businesses, we're thinking about a whole variety of costs, then why, when we get into the utility regulation space, are we allowing the conversation to be restricted um, in the way that they have been for the past 150 years. We're going to keep this conversation going with our chairwoman of Pura, Marissa Gillette. You're listening to the Lisa Wexler Show. We'll be right back. And welcome back. We're chatting with Marissa Gillette, who came here. She's the chairwoman of Pura. She came here from Maryland. She made a very big name for herself in Maryland, which was also trying to be progressive in the best possible word, which is to say to try and help us progress in our thinking about the way in which we manage the common infrastructure that we all need and rely upon. Marissa Gillette, welcome back to the show. And and lest anybody mistake what I'm saying, I am not somebody who was advocating ever that people should need to go off the grid. You know, there are a lot of people that feel that way. They feel Mm -hmm. like, if I just do my house solar energy, and if I just do this and I just do that, then I'm not going to have to rely on anybody else when the world falls apart and I don't have any power. I think that that is the wrong approach. I think the right approach is our grid needs to work for everybody, and it doesn't anymore. It falls apart too often. So many people feel like they have to buy generators Mm -hmm. because they don't have power or the power isn't reliable, and, and we just see what a mess it is, Marissa. Absolutely. I agree with you. So what I would say is my vision for the future is a decentralized grid, which does not necessarily mean that every person on your block needs to have solar plus storage, because we know that's not practical for any number of reasons, including people like me or renters. um, And you have issues with landlords sometimes. Um, And sometimes it can be cost prohibitive as well, uh, even though we have some programs that are helping to bridge that No, we want to have more people on solar, no question about it. But what you're saying is pragmatically, we're not ever all going to be on it. I don't think in our lifetime. Um, And really what a decentralized grid means is that you can have local generation, whether they're solar farms, um, the nuclear plants that we benefit from in Millstone, Mm -hmm. um, offshore wind. A decentralized grid means that you are not, um, you know, hundreds of miles away from your generation source because there are some line losses as it's transmitted over transmission. You pay congestion pricing because you're competing with areas around you that need that power too. Okay. So if you decentralize the grid... And instead of trying to command and control it from, you know, a central location, uh, you focus more on, you know, pairing some solar and storage, um, microgrids, fuel cells. You locate the generation in the communities, and then you find ways to uh, balance that power so that uh, you have more local resilience, um, which is the ability to withstand um, and recover quickly from large power outages. So you don't want people to defect from the grid permanently, mm-hmm. but you do want them to be um, empowered to ride out the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to locate those microgrids and uh, locate that investment uh, in communities that can, um, you know, maybe have a public power microgrid where you're empowering, um, you know, a grocery store that has a pharmacy, a gas station, a bank. Oh, I Those see. Those kind of investments. So that that area, the lights won't go out. If they, if we have to concentrate power someplace, we know that we can all go to those places. Exactly. And that's what a lot of states um, have started to push their state investment towards. That's interesting. We're chatting with Marissa Gillette, 203-333-9422. Okay. Uh, as long as I have you in the studio, I have a few other things. Uh, there was a very huge announcement made. I'm sure you're following this. 
that scientists believe that they made the first fusion reaction of all time, mm-hmm. and that they think that we might be 10 years away, maybe less, maybe more, of creating a power plant in which we create a nuclear reaction that gives us more energy than the energy that we are using to make the energy, right? Mm-hmm. That we mm-hmm. are net positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely relies on some nuclear technology, and I'm not sure what happens with the waste. I know that's a chronic issue. But I'm just wondering if you have followed this as somebody in the regulatory field of power and your thoughts on it. I have been following it. Um so in my current role, I'm responsible for the integrity of the infrastructure, so the poles and wires, things like that. Um, but in my prior role, uh, you know, it kind of depends on how the state has structured their jurisdiction about who's responsible for the resource adequacy okay. and the generation. So I follow it as, you know. I'm, so who is in Connecticut? Uh, the DEEP. Um, so the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Really? So, um, they are responsible for interfacing with the regional market, for example, and uh, negotiating power purchase agreements like they have. So for they're the ones responsible for the new wind generation or any kind of, that's deep? That's Correct. not you? Correct. So they run the um, RFPs, uh, they pick the winner, and then under state law, uh, they can direct the utilities to enter into contracts with the developers. That contract will come to Pura for review and approval because it's it's being paid for by rate payers. So that's our jurisdictional hook. So right now, Connecticut has, would, would you say Connecticut has a diverse supply of energy sources or not diverse enough? I think we all agree we're in the latter bucket, which is as a region, um, our fuel diversity is lacking uh, because about which is you see evident when we're talking about the supply rate increases in Mm. January, because the region relies primarily on natural gas, which to generate electricity, which means that we're really tied to global fluctuations in that price. Connecticut specifically particularly under the Lamont administration, has placed a lot of emphasis on trying to diversify and maintain the diversity of fuel. Um, so they entered into a power purchase agreement to keep Millstone online a couple sure. years ago. Right. Um, so I'd say uh, that Connecticut is ahead of the curb, but we generally generally rely on the regional market to encourage fi- uh, the fuel diversity, which is overseen by an entity called the ISO New England, mm. um, which is a FERC regulated, a federal government regulated industry um, institution rather. And I think those regional markets um, have some shortcomings in terms of. Uh, sending the right signals to um, the market that we need. Do they have any incentive at all for letting in somebody in solar, for example, or is there a disincentive? Do they want to push them out? I think it's the disincentive. Um, We're talking about, you know, an organization... that has a lot of very smart economists, but when you're getting back to the the, the question of um, following the money or uh, taking in externalities, a pure market is not is is not great at taking into account externalities, including they don't um, have to. They, they don't have, have the monopoly. To. Exactly, they don't have to. They don't have to. They're not designed in a way that requires them to. Um, so that is a you know to come full circle to talk about the. Supply increases that we're seeing in yes. January, which are totally tied um, to that regional market, that's a result of the state's decision two decades ago to deregulate. So when people ask me, and I think we talked about this last month, um, well, what's Pura going to do about the supply rate increases come January 1? And I have to look at them and say, I, I literally can't do anything because to deregulate means you removed Pura's regulatory authority 
over the supply two decades ago. Have have legislature legislators approached you to reconsider the deregulation in this next upcoming session? There have been conversations. Um, I think it's certainly uh, you know on the mind of some folks. Um, no state that deregulated has ever re-regulated, uh, so it is a, um, you know, it's certainly a, a big question, um, another really money-heavy question. Um, I think the state has moved in that direction naturally by doing these power purchase agreements, which are outside of the market. Uh, so we've definitely made... Um, you know, strides towards that by engaging offshore wind, keeping the nuclear online, because those are things that the market should have done on its own. But would not do because there's no incentive to do it. Correct. And the markets are not designed to encompass those externalities. So I think there has to be a conversation this session, whether it is, um, you know, on the end of the spectrum that just looks at a study bill, which studies can be meaningful. Yeah. um, Particularly if they are. They can also be delayed. They can also be a delay. Um, So that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, We don't have any state to look to uh, in terms of re-regulating. No state's done that. Um, But I'm sure there are solutions on the spectrum. So let me ask you, Marissa Gillette, chairwoman of Pura, is is Pura in a position, and we've talked about this a lot often online, is Pura in a position to recreate the... uh, criteria for cost. In other words, are you in a position to write regulations or to submit regulations that would insist that Eversource and UI and all of these different actors have to put a dollar value on the resources that they remove, like trees and vegetation, in exchange for doing what they want to do? a great question um and uh like any good lawyer i'll say it depends um and it depends a little bit on uh who's sitting in my seat and how far they want to push it um so pure as you're not allowed to go anywhere (laughs) just letting you know yeah (laughs) hey um i won't go anywhere until march of 2024 at least so um it's not that long that's the end of my five-year term um, so. I have a feeling you'll be reappointed. <laughs> Not a we'll, question. We'll see. Hopefully you'll like the school district where your kids are, and hopefully they're happy and you won't want to go anywhere. Oh, love, I lo- we love it. Okay, that's um, good. So PURE is a creature of statute, which means we derive all of our authority from the legislature. So um, we have pretty broad uh, powers when it comes to regulating the distribution utilities. So if there's something with respect to the trees um, and their um, and how to quantify the benefits of them. Uh, you know, scientists are doing that all the time. They are. So we can, um, you know, how they interact with the distribution, you know, utilities I mean, and wires. I mean, what value... Let's put it this way. If I wanted to take a 50-year-old oak tree and I wanted to remove it and put it in my front yard because I wanted to, it would be very expensive to do that, wouldn't it? It would. And if I wanted to take down that tree and I wanted to quantify how many more acorns are lost, caterpillars are lost, squirrels are made homeless, Robins that don't have nests. The list goes on and on and on. And I wanted to put a value on that because I valued the community of wildlife that we have that we all interdepend upon, right? We all Mm -hmm. depend upon. 
And I wanted to say that a 50-year-old oak tree of a certain diameter is worth $50,000. That would not be unreasonable. Right. And I think that that is technically within, um, I mean, some some folks would argue that's within our jurisdiction. So, uh, you know, we've had requests, um, especially over the past couple of months, for environmental assessments prior to uh, vegetation management. Now, the existing statute, as we talked about, empowers um, the decision-making at the local level with the local tree wardens. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they have often taken a really activist stance mm-hmm. only to be gobsmacked later in the process. The tree wardens care about their trees. Absolutely. So um, there is an appellate process where uh, the utility or the town itself can appeal a tree warden's decision mm-hmm. uh, to Pura. We've actually only had two of those dockets in the couple years that I've been here here um, and both have ended in settlements settlements I saw the mm-hmm. settlements mm-hmm. and in the settlements one was I think Greenwich in the settlements that I have seen and I don't know if they reached to Pura or they were settled before Pura um, the tree warden would say I'd like you to leave these 60 trees and in the end they'd leave seven mm-hmm. there's right. a lot of pressure there is so you know we uh, we were asked to step in a couple months ago, um, you know, by some of those communities, and, uh, and our message at the time was: look, the existing statute for vegetation management empowers the local mun- uh, municipality, and it's a notice statute. And if you would like Pura to take into account environmental assessments um, and a broader viewpoint, I think we're at the realm um, with respect to that where we need to talk to the legislature and say. Okay. Um, you know, we either need the legislature to step in, step in and tell the Department of Environmental and Energy Protection, hey, you need to be weighing in in that uh, mm, respect. Give us some numbers. Mm-hmm. Or could you get your own experts? We could. So we do have the power through dockets, um, which are cases that we see um, tire independent experts. Um, but to, you know, to wrap up the question with a bow, if someone approached me about doing something I generally take a pretty broad stance on my jurisdiction. The question is, um, since anything that we do is a legally binding decision mm-hmm. on the utilities, it has to have what's called substantial evidence, which as a judge, I'm sure you're familiar with the legal term of art. And, um, you know, we have we have a very broad um, jurisdiction over a lot of things, and I have 60 staff right now. Um, so when it comes down to it, we need other stakeholders, whether you're an individual rate payer, um, whether you're a municipality. Someone's going to need to make this a test case and throw some resources behind it. Absolutely, because it cannot be pure. Because I get it. We are not staffed. No, no someone's going to have to come to you and say, we want this to be the case where we are saying this is a certain value. It's missing in the environment. The deer don't speak English. You know, the owls can't speak. So we're here to say to you, when you want to make this law and allow Eversource to do this, that this also has to cost them money. And therefore, when it costs them money, maybe they'll, maybe they'll cut down fewer trees because it'll be more expensive for them, and they'll weigh the cost and benefit, and it'll be the real cost. It won't just be the Axeman cost. Absolutely. And again, the frameworks that we set out in August, which will be uh, on a going forward basis applicable, so the next time that Eversource comes in for a distribution rate case, we can apply that framework, and it will help out on a going forward basis. But when customers are coming to us on an individual, my community basis. Well, of course, that's all they ever have. 
That's a case or controversy. You know that from law school. Absolutely. All right, Marissa Gillette, and we're going to continue the conversation. We're going to take it up to the hour. We're going to talk about light pollution when we come back. 203-333-9422. We'll be right back. We're getting a real education on the limits and the possibilities of the regulatory nature of our public utility regulatory authority, which is led by Marissa Gillette. Marissa, thanks for coming in studio today. Thanks for having me. So I'm also passionate about light pollution. There have been an awful lot of scientific studies, and common sense tells us that the proliferation of night, uh, of light in darkness isn't good for our sleep. It isn't good for our mental health. There's a ton of that. But there's also the pragmatic reality that much of our loss of our bird life is due to the fact that our birds are being thrown off their migration patterns because there's too much light at night. And we've had educated people on our show from the Dark Skies Association. There's a Connecticut chapter hmm. educating us about how easy it is and how much cheaper it is to insist that our lights are down lights, to take a good look at how many lights are lit in a town and really evaluate, well, do we really need all those lights on at night? Mm-hmm. And particularly with respect to commercial buildings, like why are they lit from within when no one is there? Great questions. <laughs> it's insane. Now, you're with Pura, and you're thinking about the grid. How would, how would a conversation about light pollution and the management and conservation of those resources, how would that come to you in your frame of mind and what you do? Oh, great question. So if I worked at a municipality right now, I would definitely look into the budget that we're spending on our streetlights. Streetlights are typically on a separate tariff, which is um, essentially the rates and the terms and conditions that you are um, charged. So streetlights are typically on a separate tariff. Um, In other words, they're a separate line on a utility bill. Just for streetlights? They're charged a separate rate, and they're operated under certain terms and conditions. Sometimes municipalities own their streetlights. Sometimes the utilities own them, and they enter into, um, you know, operation and maintenance agreements with them. But if I was a municipal uh, official, I would definitely be looking into our budget for streetlights, whether we own them, and what the terms of use are associated with those streetlights, because that's a great place to start when it comes to light pollution. So a lot of those streetlights are using too much energy. They, they, that's what the dark sky guy said. Absolutely. They haven't been switched over to LED bulbs, which is one of the, um, you know, it takes them getting used to in terms of the um, the type of light that oh, comes I would out. Oh, ne- I would not advocate LED, <laughs> the blue light. Sure. You have to go to LED, the soft light. Absolutely. And you can do that. Somebody changed a light bulb in my house recently because they just switched it out, and I had them come back. I'm not living with blue light in my house. Right. So I don't know why we have to even accept blue light. It's horrible. No, yeah, I wear blue light glasses at home. Um, so right. There are no, but you know what I'm talking about, I, that absolutely. harsh, it's like you're in a hospital operating room kind of light. Nobody wants that light. No, and that's not at all what I'm advocating here. No, I think so are, LED can also be warm light, correct? Correct, and there are different settings that you can put it at, um, different settings at different times of night. Uh, so there are all these options when it comes to street lights. Can you lights. have a motion detector for the street light itself? Sure. I mean, the possibilities really are limitless, and including... I mean, um, that to me makes the most sense. I'm driving, 
and the light goes on, and then the light goes off as I'm passing the light. Absolutely. I'm not talking highways. I'm talking about the thousands and thousands of miles that are not highways. Absolutely. And you probably would have um, a hard time believing the amount of a municipal um, a municipality's budget that's spent on street lights. It's a lot, right? It's a lot, um, especially for some of our smaller municipalities. So this is definitely some place that I would start. Um, and uh, those are something that can come up in utility rate cases. So uh, UI right now, um, the other electric distribution company in the state, is in right now for a distribution utility rate case okay. before us. So what does that mean? It means that they are seeking to amend the rates and the terms and conditions with which they um, are charged with operating their distribution Let system. Let me guess. They want more money, not less. <laughs> I'm just, a lot just more. A, just get, oh, a lot more. A lot more. That's great. It's I, I have a condo more. in Fairfield that's heated by electricity. Oh, okay. So um, the distribution... So ouch. Big yeah, ouch. Big okay. ouch. So um, the distribution rate cases, uh, Pura gets 350 days to look at them, which is um, a function of the Take Back Our Grid Act two years ago. Okay, so you get almost a year. We get almost a year. And so as part of that, we look at the tariffs that um, they charge. So this is a great place for municipalities to intervene, Oh yeah. provide public comments, and uh, really advocate about aspects of this case. They can provide evidence... Um, at our hearings, they can hire lawyers to cross-examine the witnesses. So we do this whole Pura 101 series where we explain about how Pura acts and how you can interact with us. So Brenda Kupchik, for example, the first select woman of Fairfield, yes. who's a regular listener to the show, she would want to be paying attention to this. Absolutely. And so we, um, uh, Taryn, who's in studio with us, uh, she's my legislative and communications director. Okay. We have done some outreach at the start of this case, which was filed in September. Okay. Um, told the, the towns, um, their first select men and women, uh, when these hearings are. The evidentiary hearings are in February. Oh, so um, coming up. Coming so up. UI is predominantly in which towns? So Fairfield, New Haven, um, definitely the lower uh, left-hand portion of our state. Eversource serves the majority of our, um, of our state, state, of course. Okay, mm -hmm. but Fairfield, New Haven, what about Easton? Not so much? A little bit? I think a little bit. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah, it's about 14 to 17 municipalities in okay. the state. Okay. I know Fairfield has a lot of UI. Absolutely. Okay. So they're going to weigh in because it's going to have a direct impact on the rate that people are going to be paying going forward. Absolutely. So if you look at your bill today, um, if you're a residential customer, on the delivery side of your bill, you'll see two line items. You'll see a distribution charge per kilowatt hour and a distribution charge a fixed cost. Mm -hmm. So those two costs are what are typically adjudicated in these rate cases, and they make up about 35 to 40 percent of your bill. And we also use rate cases in this state to look at the policies. It's a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a ton. Um, it's where actually Pura's biggest bang for your buck in terms of our resources mm -hmm. uh, can be most effective. So they happen every three to four years um, for the and most And they're seeking part. a big increase? Uh, UI is, absolutely. What kind of a percentage? Oh, it's double digits. Um, double digit percentage in increase. Yeah, off the top of my head, I want to say they are looking for a hundred and thirty odd, thirty odd million dollars um, increase. It's a multi-year rate plan, which um, has a couple of um, percentage points increases over uh, a three-year period. Um, so, if I was in the UI service territory, it's absolutely something that I'd be paying attention. And what to. are they? What is UI? We only have a couple more minutes. I'm curious. What is UI asking for in exchange for the money? What are they promising that they'll do if they get the increase? 
So they have a multi-part um, plan. A lot of it goes to infrastructure. Um, so the routine replacement of uh, poles and wires. They have to do that anyway. Absolutely. Um, it's part they, of what they should be budgeting for. It's their business. It is. So um, there are a couple of initiatives that they have uh, put forward in this rate case. Um, there's something called the Clean Earth Initiative, which appears to be a, a attempt to partner with UConn on um, a research center. I think they have some um, additional uh, elaborations to some of the grid Are they going to bury some lines? I don't believe that's in there. There it is. Okay, you want your rate increase. You come to Pura every three to four years. You've got to have some long-term solutions. So that's definitely what we sent them the signal in uh, August. We have a whole undergrounding um, strategy that came out of that docket. So we're a little bit frustrated that the rate case decision, uh, that the rate case application they filed doesn't have it. Doesn't um, take up what we worked through in that docket. Now the timing wasn't great. We wrapped in August. They filed at the end of August or so September. What? Come on. It's definitely something that we're working through in this docket, um, and we're going to pick up steam pretty quickly. Okay, so if they haven't been listening to you and they haven't taken your very clear signals that if they want to come to ask you for something, they should also be willing to do something that's on your agenda, then part of your review is going to be having that conversation with them. Absolutely, and that's why we advocated, <coughs> excuse me, to get 350 days. Now, it's, you know, the thing that I find disheartening is that uh, we, as Pura, as my staff, um, have had to do a lot of the legwork in terms of uh, writing the ship and developing the evidence, when in reality, um, the role of a regulator should be evaluating of the course. evidence that's put before us. You know, I, when I was on the PNC, the Planning and Zoning Commission in Westport, I felt the same way. I felt like I'm supposed to be the quasi-judicial authority, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm supposed to be making a decision. But the application's so one-sided. The poor neighbors who are coming to me are like, help, help. And the developers are like, here's my lawyer. Here's my planner. Here's my traffic consultant. Absolutely. And so it wasn't fair. It, and that's the number one thing that we've been talking thing. about the of past course. couple of years. Because the other thing people don't know in utility regulation is all of their costs are passed through. So including the millions of dollars they put they spend putting together that rate case are typically typically recovered through Nothing rates. like paying for your lawyer to fight against me. Absolutely. So that's what we've been working to address over the past couple of years. Marissa Gillette, what a pleasure. Thank you. You're going to do this again, right? Absolutely. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.